0: Well, good morning again, um, if you would open with me in your copy of the Scripture to Acts Chapter seventeen, as Ben mentioned, and particularly if you are visiting, we are starting a new series this morning. Um, having just finished up a journey through First and Second Corinthians, we now begin a journey through First and Second Thessalonians, a series that I'm calling. Letters to a fledgling church for reasons that I think will appear obvious uh, as we move through the text together. Um, Ava already read Acts 17, so I'm not going to reread the passage, but I want to situate us first in the world of Thessalonica before we read the letter to the Thessalonians, who of course lived in Thessalonica. What is this city? What exactly are we dealing with? Um, how do we get a grasp on the, the thought life and the culture and even the geographical location of Thessalonica before we seek to understand the letter that Paul writes? So Paul is on his second missionary journey here, and he has been roughed up in Philippi. Uh, and he, he comes to Thessalonica. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. What do we know about Thessalonica Well, even the folks there at Thessalonica referred to Thessalonica as the mother of Macedonia. This doesn't seem to be just a bunch of Macedonian or Thessalonican homers who just like their city. Uh, In fact, historians uh, also referred to Thessalonica as the metropolis of Macedonia. Hard to be precise, but judging by the walls of the city, which admittedly Is not going to be a precise way to judge a population. Estimates between anywhere from 65,000 to a little over 100,000 constituted this city. And I think you need to know there are a lot of things that could be said about Thessalonica. But for our purposes, uh, I want to draw your attention to three things. Three things that you need to know about Thessalonica. First, it was a very strategic location owing to both sea and uh, land routes. I've got a map here, I believe. Yes, so I hope you can see that Thessalonica and that little circle. That's what I did. That's why it doesn't look good. The little red dot. I did the, the, that's why it looks crummy, because it was my doing. But anyways, um, that is where Thessalonica is. It's tucked in that little inlet there. Uh, Thessalonica like most likely had the best harbor in all of the Aegean Sea, and it was very deep. So uh, boats could anchor and it wasn't ever going to be shallow. You could always count that you could pull your boat into the uh, uh, Thessalonian harbor. And that little, that little inlet there is a Thermaic gulf. It shielded it from the southeast winds that would blow. So basically it was a very calm place to come into port. And so they decided to capitalize on it, on that had an incredible harbor. Um, But also it was situated near the Via Ignatio, which is this major east-west highway that Rome built in the second century. And so if you were going to get on this major east-west highway, you were going to run through uh, Thessalonica. And as it turned out, there's actually an intersecting road that kind of runs up through the Balkans, up and goes up north-north-north through Macedonia, and they kind of sat at the intersection. So they sat next to two very influential and well-traveled routes, and they were, they were positioned incredibly well by the sea. So there was a lot of commerce. There was a lot of coming and going. This was a serious, uh, this was a serious place. The second thing you need to know about uh, Thessalonica is it was a place that was just saturated with religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. Um, Dionysus, the uh, cult to wine and really fertility and frankly once you read a bit, debauchery. Uh, There was an Egyptian cult there uh, in Thessalonica. There was the Kabiris cult, which is actually probably the most influential cult following we don't know any we hardly know anything about it except how prominent it was that's about all we we know little past that but it was uh it was certainly an influential cult then you had the imperial cult which would have been worshiped throughout the roman empire the imperial cult would be uh roma roma was um roma was the personification of the roman state and of some of the roman uh, individual roman emperors that would be actually the subject of worship and so, in, and in all of that, as you see in Acts 17, there's Judaism. In this potpourri of religious pluralism, you'll see in Acts 17 that they stumble upon a synagogue. But the synagogue is just deeply embedded. It's just one of this of a multitude of uh, religious uh, uh, options there in Thessalonica that wouldn't have just it wouldn't have just been a, you know, a different place to go to church or something like that on Sunday morning. The, these were these. Uh, uh, religious practices were deeply embedded in culture. And so you can imagine looking forward that to say, we're going to follow one king, one Christ. Uh, in a culture like this, where there is so much pluralism, p- particularly with how many people will be coming through, uh, it, 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 would, it would require some serious sacrifice. It would require some serious social sacrifices. It would require saying no to uh, invitations to certain things and participating in community life in certain ways. So, strategically located, deep religious pluralism in the city, and finally, Roman favor. uh, For a variety of reasons, including who Thessalonica chose to back in some internal Roman conflicts, Uh, Thessalonica enjoyed favor with the Roman Empire. And uh, they deliberately fostered this favor, by the way, for financial and political gain. But also to Rome would help them ward off some of the barbarians that would come down from the north. And it was really nice when you had barbarians come down to your town to have the Rome of the imperial Roman soldiers show up. And that's really nice, you know, to have that. That's a nice handout, you know. Uh, uh, and so uh, they certainly were eager to maintain that favored status with Rome, which is why in Acts 17, when it says that these people are disobeying the decrees of Caesar, people start freaking out. <gasps> We can't have that. We we cannot have our favored status with Rome compromised. we got to do something about this ASAP. ASAP. Three things that you need to know about Thessalonica, and I think you're going to see some of the things crop back up in the letter. And so again, after getting beaten unjustly at Philippi, on his second missionary journey, Paul lands here. It says that he went into the synagogue as was his custom on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So they didn't know who Paul was, but here's the thing. Paul had a ton of clout. Paul had a ton of clout. He was, of course, a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and they would have been very eager to hear from someone Who not only was a Jew of Jews and Hebrew of Hebrews, but someone who had, as the words of one commentator, graduated from the Harvard School of Judaism. He was tutored under, he was discipled under Gamaliel, a widely regarded teacher, and that someone like this might very well have news from Jerusalem. So even though uh, it was the right of any an 18 year old male to get up and talk like this in the synagogue, but they would be very eager to hear someone like Paul speak, which is why he gets such an easy audience here. And on over the course of three Sabbath days, he reasons with them from the scriptures. Now, there is, by the way, let me just say, there's there's a tendency in Luke, uh, excuse me, in Luke's writings, Acts being one of them, to compress narrative. OK, a lot of the narratives are compressed um, and but but. There is a very good reason to think that Paul was there significantly longer than just three weekends. Okay, Significantly longer than three weekends. Number one, there were a bunch of, a bunch of Gentiles. There was a pri- pri- primarily Gentile church. And so that would, have take, that would take time, it would ima- I would imagine, to evangelize and disciple that many Gentiles. Uh, but also he was there long enough to receive financial help from the Philippian church at least a couple of times. He was also there long enough to become established in a trade so that he could actually point to himself as someone who worked with his own hands, worked day and night, and wasn't a burden to people. And he was there long enough to be able to refer back to leaders in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That all takes a little bit more than three weeks. You know what I mean? To get, to get established in all of those things. And so the vast majority of, of scholars believe that he was there for uh, much longer than three weeks, but that this happened at a certain point in conjunction Uh, with that stay. And Luke has compressed the account and is drawing our attention just to what Paul was bringing in terms of the message of the gospel. And so when he preaches in the synagogues, you have kind of three classes of people who believe. It says, and some of them, meaning the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So first, some of the Jews in the synagogue believe this would include Jason. It's going to be this rich guy, who helps them out in just a second? He's gonna stay at, they're gonna stay at his house. Jason was one of the Jews that believed. The second, it says devout Greeks. Sometimes this is translated God fearers. Okay? Uh, it refers to it refers to these pa- former pagans who have come to accept the ethical monotheism of Israel, and they attend the synagogue, but they do not hold themselves to all of the Mosaic law, particularly circumcision. Okay, so when you read about God fearers or the uh, devout Greeks. That's what it is. It's someone who is participating in synagogue life, is committed to ethical, the ethical monotheism of the God of Israel, but they're not, they're not doing all the formalism of the law. And Paul says a bunch of these people also were persuaded. A bunch of them also repent and believe. And the third class, he said, is not a few, meaning many, of the leading women. And this is a fascinating detail right here. Because it confirms for, for the very beginning in Thessalonica uh, that the church there included people who fell on every part of the spectrum of social class and power and influence. It wasn't just some peasant church. There were, some, there, there were, uh, there were people like Jason who was wealthy, influential. There were leading and influential uh, women in this church as well that people would have known that had clout. Uh, all the way down, and so you have a hodgepodge of people trying to figure out a new faith that 's just been proclaimed to them, and paul isn 't going to get to stay there very long, which is going to create the need for first thessalonians what we 're going to see because he does, you can see he doesn 't i mean he stays longer than three weeks, but he doesn 't stay as long as he wants to, not even close to as long as he wants to so what happens so people like jason get taken away the jews become jealous verse 5 and taking some wicked men of the rabble which is in greek literally just bad men of the marketplace Uh, one new testament scholar says it refers to louts loafers and lowlifes those who hang around public spaces with nothing to do but to get in trouble and so what what the idea is hey some of our wealthy influential members are getting taken away from the synagogue we can't have this No, 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 no. We can't have an upstart movement here that's competing and saying that they're the fulfillment of Judaism. Like if you want to be a true Jew, you follow this Christ. Like, hold on, wait a second. This could could really sink us. So what we got to do is we got to go drum up some riffraff and we have to start a little riot. We got to have a little mob outcry in order to nip this one in the bud. And that is exactly what they do. They form a little mob. They set the city in an uproar, which you have to hear Luke's irony there. They're forming a mob and setting the city in uproar to protest that people have come and turned the world upside down. They're still here. The, the, the irony is extremely, extremely strong in the way Luke tells a story. But anyways, the idea is they go to Jason's house because presumably, uh, well, he he will learn that he received them. They thought he was staying there. And um, they didn't find, uh, they couldn't find him. We're not told why. Whether they were hiding, maybe they were out at the swimming hole. It just isn't clear. But they can't find them. And so you say, well... You'll do just fine. So they take Jason instead. They take Jason and they take some of the brothers. They take some of their brothers. So just to be clear, it says that they were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble or bad men of the marketplace. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, that is, Paul and Silas, out. But, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, which again is very ironic. Okay, So what's going to happen again is they're going to charge them with two things. Number one is just disturbance of the peace. The same folks who have turned the world upside down have now landed here. And by the way, what an epic description of what happens when you take Jesus Christ and proclaim him faithfully in the world. You turn things upside down. And they, and they knew about it. They knew this wasn't someone who just came up with something the other day. They knew that, that this was something that was a long time coming, and finally it showed up on their doorstep in this guy, Paul. What had turned the world around has come to knock on the door of Thessalonica. And they said, we just, we just can't have this. And in a huge disturbance of the peace, they protest this pseudo-disturbance. Of the peace. That's the first charge, but there's a second charge as well. Jason has received them, verse seven, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now I want you to notice here; it doesn't say that it's been they're setting themselves up against Caesar. It's talking about the decrees of Caesar and all of the the the. Historians and New Testament scholars are saying, what decree of Caesar are they talking about? There are historical decrees that Caesar made. Which decree are they, are they in, you know, bringing to bear here to say that they're violating this decree? And by far the most plausible decree is decrees from Caesar that, that uh, imperial edicts that eventually came about because you had some people predicting The death or the succession of the emperor, particularly related to things like their health and what king was coming next. And um, and and so the the Caesar, the, the king, the emperor just says there are I'm issuing an edict that you may not make predictions about the succession of an emperor. You may not make predictions about another king coming. You may not make predictions about um, the death or health or a successor. And this fits very well with what we learn Paul taught them about the kingdom and the coming of the day of the Lord. Because Paul taught the Thessalonians, hey, there's a king, there's a kingdom. And then particularly in the last chapter of Thessalonians and in second Thessalonians, the king is coming. The king is coming. So we have incredible reason to hope but the king is, the king is already exists and is coming. And so it's almost certain that that's the decree itself that they're saying, look at these people, they're violating this decree again before the authorities. And so they were disturbed when they had heard these things, obviously that they don't want to lose this favor with Rome. This is a, this is a kind of a Tense little relationship, delicate in one sense. They want to preserve this, and so something has to be done. And so what happens? What happens is Jason does Paul and Silas a solid. What does he do? Well, being the wealthy guy he is, he ponies up some money. And he says, I'm get, they, say, they, they take this money from him, and in conjunction with Paul and Silas leaving the area and immediately fleeing, it smooths things over. No further repercussions, nothing else has to happen. And apparently this practice was quite common. seemed—I mean, It's not quite like paying bail or something or hush money, but it's somewhere in that category where he's just given this money, kind of paying for what these people did, so to speak. And once they got enough money, they were, so they were like, so long as you pay this money and they leave, we're not going to do anything else. No one's got to go to jail or anything like that. And it's likely that this dynamic right here is going to be behind what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that Satan has hindered him from coming to them. And it's almost certainly why it is Timothy who gets sent to Thessalonica because he was not indicted like Paul and Silas in the ruckus. So he gets an in. He is not included here. Somehow, I'm not sure what he was doing at the time, but he was not part of the, the two that got indicted. And so he seems to be able... To go back. Now, follow with me in Acts. I hope you have your copy of the scripture open. So, what's going to happen is they've taken the money as security from Jason and then and the rest, and they let them go. And then, immediately, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So, they go into the synagogue, we're going to do the exact same thing, and Berea is just right down the road, and these were more, these Jews were more noble, we learned, than the Jews at Thessalonica, they were examining the scriptures eagerly to see if Jesus was in fact the Christ in accordance with what Paul proclaimed, but then verse 13 of chapter 17, where they're really, you know, things are going well here, here in Berea initially, what happens? But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So they found out that all they had done is just gone down the road and restarted doing the same thing. And they were like, no, 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 no. We can't have this. Come on, let's go. And so they go down there, they send word, they take some folks. We don't know exactly how it happened, but they essentially go down there and they run him out again. They run him out again. Notice what it says though. Verse 14, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, who this time Paul's riding solo. But, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, which is quite a ways... And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So the idea is, Paul, get beaten at Philippi, then I come to Thessalonica, I get kicked out of Thessalonica, I go to Berea. I get kicked out of Berea, I go by myself to Athens, leaving Paul and Silas behind, but telling them to come as soon as possible. And it is in Athens, when Paul is experiencing the anxieties of the churches, that eventually Timothy gets over to Athens and they send him back. So flip over with me in your call. I want you to see this because I want you to put the pieces together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, just very quickly, and then keep your finger there because we're going to come back one more time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one uh, be moved by these afflictions. So, Athens, Paul, uh, excuse me, Timothy and Silas meet up with Paul in Athens. From Athens, they send Timothy, who was not indicted in the ruckus, back to check on This church, Paul then delivers somewhere in there the famous address to the Areopagus. And then, if you look at the next chapter in Acts, if you're following along, where does Paul end up next? Corinth. He lands in Corinth. The saga that we just finished. And what happens from Corinth? He arrives there in weakness and fear and trembling. 1 Corinthians. You can see why now. It's been quite a journey to get down to Corinth. But he receives a report from Timothy during his stay. That report is in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. So just read with me again, very briefly. But now that Timothy has come to us, again, Timothy sent from Athens to Thessalonica. They went ahead and headed down to Corinth. And then finally, Timothy comes from Thessalonica, meets up with them at Corinth, and he brings this, but now, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Timothy gives a report of what has happened, and Paul says, I need to write this church, and he writes them a letter, and that letter is 1 Thessalonians. That is First Thessalonians, written fifty fifty one A.D. from Corinth. Back to this church that he just established with religious pluralism and all of the with the strategic location, all of it that we already talked about that he was run out of before he, I mean, he is able to establish something. He even got he got leaders apparently, but he got ran out of and he's he has the anxieties of the churches on his heart and he says, I've got to know how this is. Timothy, go back, come report to us. He brings a report, says it's a good report, but there are some things we gotta get cleaned up. And he and, and, and so Paul responds out of Timothy's report and writes the letter 1 Thessalonians. What does he write? 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, which by the way is the longer formal name for Silas. Same guy, okay? Same guy. Paul, Silas, and now Timothy, who's come, is with them, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He establishes them as a Bona fide church of Christ, greets them with one of his customary greetings, says grace to you and peace. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers. He expresses thankfulness for them, indicated by actually mentioning them in his prayer life, And what is the thankfulness here? What is the thankfulness here exactly? We're going to see the ultimate source of thankfulness is in verse 4. But kind of the more immediate reason for Paul's thankfulness is in verse 3 here. Remembering this. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These three constructions are all little genitive constructions in the Greek. And so if you're interpreting it, you kind of have to understand the relationship with the first part to the second part the same if you're going to be consistent. And what I'm suggesting is that the second part, um, the, the, excuse me, the first part flows out of the second part. It's the source. The second part is the source of the first part, first part. So the work of faith is the kind of work that comes out of faith. It is a faith that works. It is... Um, a faith that says, I'm putting my hand to the plow, particularly t- clinging to Christ in the midst of persecution, in the midst of not being popular. We're going to see that more teased out in First Thessalonians. Your labor of love, the kind of labor that stems from love, exertion. And uh, particularly, uh, it seems that he's getting at, in light of the transitional prayer in chapter 3 and then 4, 19, uh, 9 through 12, it seems like he's talking about their love for one another their love for one another. If you look at the transition there in verse 12 of chapter 3, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. This is going to be a theme that gets recycled in the letter a couple of times. So he's saying, I am thankful for the labor of love that you all display towards one another. Remember how different this church was, brothers and sisters. Remember the hodgepodge. The, the social class hodgepodge, the religious pluralism that they're in, people coming out of polytheism. I mean, it's just a jumble of folks trying to love each other well. And he says, I'm thankful. And it brings me joy to hear about your labor of love. And then finally, in kind of the ultimate spot there, the third spot, steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope. Without future hope, we talked about this, which is going to play a big role in First and Second Thessalonians. Um, there is no good news. There is no gospel without hope, without future hope. People without hope, particularly when life gets very hard, um, struggle to have a desire to continue on. And so Paul looks and says, you have a hope that leads to steadfastness. And because of that, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I'm deeply grateful. And it's this particular expression of thankfulness as I kind of close the introduction to 1st Thessalonians that I want to press on uh, just a bit here and that is Paul celebrating the faith of others gratitude apart from service so there are there are an incredible amount of very insightful and helpful things that could be said about thankfulness i mean if you can really become a thankful it's like a secret weapon for joy and, and, and maturity in Christ, if you can develop your thankfulness. It really is. Um, a lot could be said about thankfulness. Usually when we talk about I'm thankful for something, means some, I have benefited from something, someone has done something for me, to me, with me, something that I am thankful for. But interestingly, uh, and that's what I mean by service, interestingly, Paul's thankfulness here has nothing to do with them serving him at all it is just thankfulness for their labor of love their work of faith their steadfastness of hope and and i had to wrestle through this this week because how often you mean we we all say things like i'm thankful for x y or z but how often comparatively do we say you know what i'm thankful for this person's hope i'm just thankful for their hope their steadfastness you know we might admire those things we might make comments like oh this is a good but like the, comparatively, we don't just express thankfulness for the, some of the virtues. This, sometimes these are called the three Christian virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. We, we typically, uh, by comparison, don't express just thankfulness for those things in other people in, you know, unless they, they have served us in some way. And I don't mean in a selfish sense, but just it seems almost like the, the sentence top stops too soon. I'm just thankful for that person's love. Oh, did they come help you move? No, 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 no. I'm just thankful for their, I'm thankful for their love. I'm thankful for their hope. And so the question I want to ask is like, how does that exactly make sense? Like, how can we think about celebrating the faith of other people in a way that leads to thankfulness that Paul clearly does right here? Clearly does right here. Giving thanks, mentioning them in prayers for these, for these things. The first is this. Gratitude, apart from people serving us, us, challenges us to think kingdom and mission mindedly. Okay? So, this kind of thankfulness, I would say, requires, but then after it requires it, it actually promotes a kind of big picture, kingdom minded disposition in our lives. Okay? When I am thankful for the faith or the hope, the love, the work in those areas, In other people, we remember that God's plan of redemption and what we are a part of is is much bigger than me, myself and I. And that I can be thankful for grace that I see in you because the kingdom is clearly advancing. Um, There was a football game on yesterday that some of y'all may have watched and at least one team played uh, in the game. Other team maybe played football. I'm not sure what they did, but there was one. But but. But let me ask you a question. Why is it that the linebacker on defense is thankful that the quarterback can throw the ball accurately? Why is that? They're not even on the field at the same time. Why? Well, you might think uh, that the answer is that they're, he's thankful because that quarterback's strength helps the team accomplish the mission. He's not thankful because it helps him out in some direct personal way, making tackles as part of the defense. That's not it. He's thankful because he realizes he is a part of something bigger, and that person's strength there advances the mission of the team. That's why he's thankful. It's not a me centered thankfulness. It calls us to expand our understanding of what God is doing, and we have more of a community, we have more of a family, we have more of a kingdom mindset that's how we can look at other people and say, I'm thankful for their love. I'm thankful for their hope. I'm thankful for that person's faith because the mission is going forward and hell's gates are getting stormed and I can see that person's a part of it. And because of that, I'm thankful. Number one, being thankful simply for those things and other people, apart from how they directly benefit us at all, challenges us to think kingdom and mission mindedly. Second, This kind of thankfulness flows from and requires recognition. It demands recognition that God is at work. It demands recognition that God is at work, which is particularly helpful when life goes dark. Alvin Plantinga, who's probably one or two, at least, uh, most brilliant Christian philosophers currently living, he wrote a spiritual autobiography, and in it he includes, for someone who is an intellectual professional athlete, basically, he has this amazing statement. He says, sometimes I wake in the wee hours of the morning and find myself wondering, can all this really be true? Can this whole wonderful Christian story really be more than a wonderful fairy tale? And at other times, I find myself as convinced of its main liniments, that is its central core tenets and claims, as that I live in South Bend, Indiana, which is where he lives. He's talking about, as someone who has every rational reason, way more than everyone in here to believe, every argument this man is just, I can't say enough. He says this, so what happens when life goes dark? What happens when you feel like the psalmist crying out, Where are you? Show up, God. Rouse yourself, the psalmist says. How long will you forget me? Is this whole thing a fairy tale? And here's what happens. Here's what happens in those situations. You can look at people's hope, faith, and love, and you can see that there's something supernatural in them that they could not produce themselves, and you can see divine fingerprints over people's lives, your brothers and sisters. And you know what you'll realize then? God is at work. God is at work. When you might struggle to see it, put things together in your own mind, things that have have happened, things that you have been through, maybe you just feel like God is far off or distant, and you say, well, I'm not really sure God works. I'm not really sure that He shows up. You can look at other people's work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and say, okay, that right there cannot be faked. God is at work. And that will encourage me and give me, especially in those moments in life, give me deep, deep reason to be thankful. I'm thankful for their hope. I'm thankful for their faith because I see in it divine fingerprints all over that person. And it reminds me that God is at work. Number two. Number three. Gratitude, apart from being served or service, flows from loving people as ends and wanting them to taste the goodness of God. Quite simply, there is nothing like, especially as a pastor, but not uniquely as a pastor, just the joy and thankfulness that comes from seeing other people thrive in Jesus Christ. Not because they help me, not because they serve me, not because I even feel personally fulfilled like I contributed to it. It doesn't even matter. That's not it. It is just the pure joy of seeing someone taste and see that the Lord is good. In fact, in chapter 3, he's even going to say this. After Timothy brings the good news, Paul says in chapter 3 verse 6, "For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God." He's just so joyful. He's so joyful because they because of their labor of love and their work of faith and their steadfastness of hope. He's I don't even have enough thanks to give. I'm so joyful for you. Because these are good things and I can look and see that you're tasting it and you're enjoying it. If you've ever had a hobby or if you've ever done something and you've invited someone else into it. And you've seen that they've enjoyed it too. Maybe they've caught the bug that you caught years ago. You introduce something to someone, maybe a new movie, a game, whatever it is. And you see them taste it. And you see them get excited about it. And you see them want to move forward in it. Doesn't it bring you a sense of joy to know that you've you touched base at that point, that you've shared that, that they're, you know exactly what they're feeling? Yes! You've got it. You're tasting it. Yes, that's what, something, like, something like what Paul's doing. here. I'm so proud of you. I'm so thankful. It doesn't matter if you've ever served me once. That's not the ground of my thankfulness. I'm thankful because you're tasting it. I know how good it is, and I see it in you. And I'm overflowing with joy and because of that. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Finally, gratitude apart from service encourages us in our hope, faith, and love. I was listening to a leader the other day. He made a very provocative statement. And he said that sometimes people with strong hope, strong faith, May need to let other people borrow theirs for a season. It's like what? And he, what he meant was not something about deep theology, like you can, you know, someone else's faith can save you. Or any of that. He was making a point, a uh, much more subtle, much more subtle point about how people, um, how how people believe, how faith can be strong or weak. And probably we've all experienced something like this. There's probably been a time in your life, maybe it was something trivial like winning a game when you were behind, or maybe it was overcoming tremendous adversity, or maybe it was um, a crisis of belief or faith, whatever it is, and there was someone there. There was someone with you in your group, in your family, and on a team, whatever it was, recreate the context, that, that affected you. Their belief in what was happening, their trust that this was true, their unwavering faithfulness, you looked at them and were like, okay, if this person believes it, like they have a they have this um unavoidably compelling quality to their belief. That when yours starts to waver, you said, Oh, when I'm around this person, I cannot help but to believe these things are true. I don't I cannot help but to believe these things. Are true. I say, yes. I can believe this. I can do this. This is possible. This isn't a fairy tale. And so when maybe life goes dark for me. Or I don't know left from right in my own thinking. Because of what's happened. Or how I'm trying to put things together. I can look at people's hope and faith and love. And it can encourage me forward in the Christian life. It not only says, with the power of the Spirit, I can do this, but it will help me when my belief wavers. It will give me hope when I tend to be pessimistic or despair. If that person can have that kind of hope, I, I, am just, I, am, I cannot but help to be affected and believe those things when I'm around that person. It's too real for them. It's too real. They believe so much that it's almost unthinkable that they could be wrong. Everyone has, has met someone like that, or everyone has been in a circumstance like that. And so when that happens, we have incredible reason to be thankful. We have incredible reason to recognize that and say, okay, this person is not, they don't even, that person doesn't even have to know that you noticed this about them. Okay, it doesn't take them again serving you in any particular way or doing anything concretely for you in any way whatsoever. But you look in their faith and say, okay, on days where I simply struggle to believe, Or I simply struggle to have hope that X, Y, or Z. Or I simply struggle to to have any encouragement that this is going to happen. There are some people who their faith, their hope, their labor of love, and their work we can look at and say, "Okay." Let me just let me just borrow a little bit of your incredible, unwavering conviction, just for a little bit, because it will encourage me in the faith, and I will have incredible reason to be thankful. That's the challenge then. That's the challenge as we close out the introduction to First Thessalonians and Paul's thankfulness in other letters but also in Thessalonians is going to crop back up. Thankfulness for people thriving even when they, don't, they haven't been people who have served him or done anything directly to benefit him. Incredible thankfulness. That's the challenge. How might you and I improve? Even if it's just one little concrete step in becoming more thankful apart from anyone benefiting us in any concrete way? How could we look at people's work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and develop some chops for thankfulness that perhaps are underutilized? And I want to suggest that if we take that challenge to heart, that our church will be better for it. Okay, let's pray. God, we are so thankful We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for in Christ. We have so much to be thankful for in one another. And so God, we ask you to forgive us of our grousing and our internal complaining that is effortless for us. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see not only what you've done that directly affects us in Jesus Christ, but to see the hope and faith and love of brothers and sisters all around us and to embrace thankfulness from a new perspective, perhaps. Lord, would you capture our hearts? Would you leave us in wonder over your work? And would you help us be people of deep gratitude, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.